0: From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. That's Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is on there celebrating! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe, from way outside, got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron, for three for the win! Yes! LeBron! and rings were handed out like candy. I a Here's yes! it all over. Won. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. I'm your host, Garrett Bouguet, and with me this week, a very special guest. He's a regular on the program He's a fellow Sports Business Classroom alum. He uh, hosts, or is one of the co-hosts, of the Restricted Area podcast. He also has done some editing, producing on uh, Red Team Scouting content. Uh, If you're looking to study up for the draft, which is this Thursday night, uh, Red Team Scouting is a good place to go for all of that. But his name is Simon Charon. Gordon, Simon, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, Garrett. You know, the... uh it's funny, I'm remembering now, it's been it's been a few years as a, uh, as a Warriors fan since I remember this feeling, but it's always so exciting how quickly the draft comes up after the finals if you are a fan of any team except the team that wins the finals. Uh, so I, it's hard to feel that way about the Warriors because they still don't have much to work with in this year's draft, but uh, looking for some optimism and, and it's nice how it's uh, less than a week after or I guess I guess a week after uh, the end of that series.
0: Yeah, as a as a hardcore NBA fan which we both obviously are, it, it is interesting, you know, because we both we both obviously appreciate the Xs and Os and the actual basketball and that's, you know, one form of entertainment, but then almost immediately after uh we get the drama and the spectacle that is the NBA offseason which as you said starts pretty much immediately after uh, the you know the Toronto Raptors got about 48 hours to be the focus of the NBA world, and then the Anthony Davis trade happened, which uh, we will uh, we'll obviously get to uh, our thoughts on that trade. We're also going to discuss uh, some NBA draft talk, but first, uh, you know, Simon, as a, as a as a big time Warriors fan, uh, watching the Warriors lose the NBA finals, failing to uh, successfully pull off the three-peat, what were your thoughts uh, in general about that uh, NBA Finals and, and the Raptors being the 2018-19 NBA champs?
1: Well, I, before the Finals, I felt like there were kind of five possibilities that seemed equally likely to me. It was Warriors in four, Warriors in five, Warriors in six, Warriors in seven, or Toronto in seven. Uh, those, that seemed kind of like, maybe not equally likely, Seem like the five plausible outcomes. I didn't see Toronto in six. Um, there were some people picking Toronto in five, which almost happened. You could also say that you know, going the other direction, we were a shot away from Toronto in seven. But the Raptors were clearly the better team, however you want to slice it in this series. Uh, and 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 it's a really hard one to analyze um, from the Warriors' perspective because how would they have played if if they didn't have the injuries? You never know. I'm i I'm, a, I'm a, a completely anti asterisk. I think the whole asterisk thing is ridiculous. If you look at the the history of the last, of the last five finals that the Warriors have been in, you 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 have a not insignificant section of people that would tell you that the real champion in all five years should have been the loser of the finals. Right? It was the Cavs should have won in twenty fifteen because Kyrie and Kevin Love were out, and the Warriors should have won in twenty sixteen because Draymond got. Ended for game five and Steph wasn't 100% and then 2017 you could I mean that one was pretty uh, you know Warriors went 16 and 1 but what if Kawhi doesn't go down in the Spurs series 2018 you know Houston should have won the title because Chris Paul went down and then this year the Warriors should have won because they were the more hurt team it, I mean you, you can do this every year the fact is that the hardest thing to do is actually go out there and win four games in four straight series um, and, and we, we we don't know what would happened. Toronto looked awesome. They were their role players played much better than Golden State's role players. I think that Steph and Kawhi both had some bigger games and some smaller games, but without Kevin Durant out there to kind of check Kawhi, he he was clearly just just the difference and the guy that Golden State couldn't figure out in the end. And uh, he, he's definitely the dynasty breaker, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, Kawhi's postseason is going to go down as one of the the greatest of all time. You know, I think he finished third all time in, in in a single postseason in terms of points, and then obviously also doing it on the defensive end. and And you're absolutely right that every season there there's some sort of injury that's taking place that that causes the the team that should have won to to not pull it off. and you know, I think we—I think pretty much everyone agrees that when all the teams were fully healthy, the Warriors had the most talent. I mean, they—they they had with Durant and Curry, you've got two MVP candidates, and then you've got two other All Stars as well, and Draymond and Clay. But I mean, even without KD, the Warriors were able to get past the Houston Rockets. They were able to win the Western Conference Finals pretty easily against Portland. So it's not as if that was a you know a, a lousy team coming into the NBA Finals, and and frankly the Raptors went through maybe the the best year that the Eastern Conference in terms of strength and that in that side of the of the bracket that that there's been in maybe a decade, and they were able to get through that, and uh, as you mentioned, were able to pretty much throughout the series really dominate. I think they ended up um, you know winning about, like, 16 of the of the 24 quarters or something to that extent. So that they were pretty dominant, and a team that really was, was dominant on both ends of the floor.
1: Yeah, and, and the other thing we do, and I, I want to get to that, talk about kind of the balance of Toronto, but the other thing we do when we kind of try to litigate what would have happened with teams at full strength is we make a lot of assumptions based on what actually has happened. So, like you said, the Warriors were able to get by uh, Houston, when Durant went down, they were able to sweep Portland without Kevin Durant. And at that point, you have a legitimate conversation. I think that I think the whole idea like, oh, there was this crowd of people saying they were better was kind of a straw man. I didn't really hear people saying that, but you did have people talking about how they didn't need Durant to win the title. Um, and so then when they lose, when they don't beat the Raptors, it's, oh, well, they clearly needed Durant. If they were to win the series, we'd be talking about see they didn't need him. So that way of thinking, where well, we're going to base it on what happens, is precisely how credit gets taken away from a team like Toronto for, by because they did what they needed to do, they actually ran out and won the series. Therefore, that makes it about the Warriors' injury problems, right? Um, it, it's purely a flawed way of looking at it. Look, Toronto, uh, luck is always involved. they the series against philadelphia came down to one shot um, they won an overtime game that if they had lost they would have been down 3-0 against milwaukee this raptors team never was a juggernaut though this is kind of your normal championship formula is you build a contender and you have a chance to win a title and that's exactly what they did last offseason when they went over and got Kawhi. they were a contender from that moment i i said it right away I think they're the best team in the East now I also picked Toronto to win the East the year before and it, things didn't go as well but this was clearly a different team and then the, I think the move to bring in Marcus Gasol was just so slept on at the trade deadline Pe- people were talking about how Nikola Mirotic was a better addition uh, or a more impactful playoff addition uh, or the Tobias Harris trade which I mean not no disrespect to those players but Marcus Gasol is a guy you, going through you know you're going to go up against Joel Embiid you're going to potentially go up against DeMarcus Cousins although he didn't end up being much of a factor but Gasol was a huge part of that and Golden State really had no answer I mean this is a team that's gone small in the finals and that's kind of been their checkmate move for the last five years and they weren't able to do it in part because they didn't have Kevin Durant and in part because uh, the, the bigs on Toronto were just Able to stay on the floor
0: and really punished the Warriors' small ball lineup. Yeah, Gasol was absolutely uh, terrific, especially defensively. You know, a lot of people I, I heard were concerned. You know, his ability to stay on the floor, but the guy is a former Defensive Player of the Year. He uh, he handled those Steph Curry pick and rolls well in terms of going out there blitzing, trapping at times he's got very active hands he uh you know he's a high IQ player so he was able to kind of read what curry was going to do on those traps a lot of times but uh i was also curious to hear your thoughts about uh, about steph curry's performance you know he's been getting a lot of flack for the fact that he went 6 of 17 in that game 6 and uh, of course missed that uh, missed that shot that you know it wasn't an easy shot but you know it's a shot that curry has been capable of making throughout his career uh, you know, what are your thoughts on, on Curry's performance in the finals and uh, some of the the backlash that he's received?
1: Yeah, so I mean, first of all, I, I think, like you said, that's that's a shot he's capable of making, and he missed it. And uh, he's had two shots in uh, championship losses that missed. Uh, There's obviously the shot over Kevin Love in 2016, and then there is the one uh, down the stretch of Game Six. There, he also hit. Game ceiling shots in, in two series that the Warriors won. Uh, 2015 finals, he hit, he hit the kill shot in that game and then as well in 2017. Uh, so, you know, th- those get forgotten and, and the misses are remembered more, of course. But um, I-, I think the general notion, just I-, I mean, I'll speak more generally and then speak specifically on the game. I think the general notion that Steph Curry is not a good finals performer is just clearly not true. If you look at his numbers for the series, like I said, they're extremely comparable to what Kawhi Leonard did. Um, you look at a game like you said six of 17, three of those were like shots at the end of the quarter, so I think six of 14 and three of eight from three kind of you know cleaning the glass style stats on that. but clearly not a good game for Steph Curry. That being said, uh, you're gonna have bad games in a playoff series, right? He had a huge game five, a huge game one, and a, a absolutely massive game three in a losing effort. Uh, and really in game two, I mean there was uh, like what was it, fourteen like kind of hockey assists, screen assists, whatever it was in that game. Uh, he had a huge impact on the series. Toronto's entire defense was predicated on stopping him. And uh it got the better of him in game six to be sure and, and that's something that he I don't know if you say he has to answer to, because I don't I don't think I think the answer is just they got the better of him. Kawhi Leonard is you could argue a better player, or certainly as good a player. These are two of the best players in the league. I think maybe going into next season, they would be my number one and two. But uh, it was a tough series and a tough way for it to end for Steph. There, there's no way around that.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you brought up the you know the the three quarter court heaves that Steph puts up because you know a lot of guys, I would say the majority of players in the NBA don't even take those shots and and they do so because they know they don't want their field goal percentage to be hurt and you know people look at the you know the the bottom line at the end of the game oh 6 of 17 but yeah if you if you took 3 th- three shots from 80 feet that have a 2% chance of going in maybe that's a higher percent because it's Steph uh but you know and, curry, and i, did,
1: I did, curry still averaged i mean just pulling up the numbers here in the finals even with with all you know what we're talking about there 30 points six assists, five rebounds, 2.8 turnovers. That's a pretty low number for him. I uh, I mean, if he had been better, could the Warriors have won? Yeah, but I don't, I don't know if, if we're expecting Steph to be better than that. It's because we're putting him probably on a tier that he's not on. He's not LeBron. He's not MJ. Uh, so yeah, he could be better. He's still, you know, an all-time great player.
0: Yeah. And, you know, he, uh, I think the other big issue, you know, with with Durant's absence, and, you know, even, you know, people were comparing, oh, well, they should be just the 2016 Warriors then. Well, that team had Harrison Barnes, who was a high 30% three-point shooter and a decent defender, Uh, and they also had guys like Leandro Barbosa and a younger Sean Livingston and Iguodala. That team was just better. It had more shooting. And in this finals, I think one of the things that was very evident for, for me was you know, all the attention Curry received and rightfully so because he's a guy he's one of the few guys on the on the court for the Warriors that could really beat the Raptors defense. He got so much attention and those hockey assists, those plays you're talking about where he gets trapped and the Warriors play four on three were just not as effective in this series because guys couldn't make shots and you know, a guy like Iguadala, he he had a hot game six but for much of the series just couldn't knock anything down.
1: And, and the thing about that is, I think you would say that these guys actually made shots better than you would have expected coming into the series. I mean, these aren't shooters, like you said. Iguodala was off and on, mostly off, but he hit a game deciding shot in game two, and then had a massive game six. Uh, that's kind of you'll you'll take that from Andre Iguodala. You'll take what Quinn Cook did in a few of the games in this series. I, Jonas Jerebko knocked down a couple shots. McKinney. I mean, you you can't really ask for much more shooting from that team and uh, and that just speaks to like you said the fact that they're not the 2016 warriors they're nothing close to it in terms of the bodies the the nba caliber rotation players and specifically the, the shooters and and so that's when you know i don't know if you want to transition to the off season, but uh, I, I certainly have some thoughts on on how that relates to this this team going forward
0: yeah let's do it you know obviously the the big talking points you know durant Tearing his Achilles in Game Five and Clay Thompson tearing his ACL in Game Six. I mean, you can't you can't get worse luck than that if you're a Warriors fan. And you know, going into this upcoming season, you know, there's there's a lot of talk of is the dynasty over? And uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts and uh, what your expectations are for the Warriors uh, with a with a really limited roster next season.
1: Well, I think the question. Starts with: Do the Warriors try to keep the dynasty going next year? Do they try to make a six straight finals win for win their fourth in six years, or do they kind of take more of a you know this is going to be an extended dynasty, so to speak, a San Antonio Spurs approach? You know, you have the the '90s Bulls got to six and eight years. You have the Spurs get to five and fifteen years. Uh, a lot of this is going to hinge on things outside of their control. I mean, if they re- if they're not able to resign. Durant and Clay Thompson, uh, and I think Thompson is pretty much a guarantee. But if Durant is, if they're not able to retain Durant, next season is, is is something you completely write off. If they are able to retain him and Clay, then it comes down to: is there a chance that these guys come back by the postseason? And and with you know a level of ability where they're not obviously they're not going to come back and be themselves, but you know I think a Steph Curry Draymond Green duo mixed with two all-time great spot-up shooters, if that's what those guys are, is still a, a contender, not not the team that they have been uh, in years past. But So that's the first question. But then if you have that, you still need other things to happen in your favor because you have to make the playoffs without those guys. And as, as great as, as Steph and Draymond are, uh, if you look at this roster right now, the guys who are under guaranteed contracts going into next season, it's Steph Curry, it's Draymond Green, it's Damian Jones, it's Andre Iguodala, and it's Jacob Evans. So that's not just your starting five as, as of this moment. That is your roster. Um, that's not a playoff team. Obviously, Kavon Looney's a guy they can re-sign. I think they will. Uh, Sean Livingston's a guy that they, I think, will let go because he only has $2 million of a of $7 million contract guaranteed.
0: Or and he um, may retire as well.
1: Yeah, and I think I think the only way he doesn't retire is probably if they exercise that option. Um, so so this is a, an extremely thin team. Uh, you're, you're gonna need to, I mean, getting DeMarcus Cousins back with on that 120 percent raise would be an absolute godsend for them. That's extremely unlikely, but who knows what the market's going to be. He didn't look great this year. So, so that's a possibility. That way you can then use the mid-level exception to bring in another rotation-caliber player. Uh, obviously a shooter would be the priority there. Um, and then you're, you're going to need some guys to, to you know, sign up for, for minimum contracts and, and see what you can roll out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I agree with you that Cousins is, is very unlikely. And, and as you said, he, he struggled for most of the finals, but you know, coming off of the you know, not only the Achilles but also the quad tear... Uh, the fact that he had even some moments in the finals was a bit surprising to me. He played extremely well in the second half of that game too, and he had moments as well in in Game Six in a losing effort. So maybe teams will look at that and say, "Okay, we we've seen some moments, and you know, the further out you are from some of these injuries, maybe the consistency comes back a little bit."
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's probably what is going to happen, um, especially with the cap space around the league this summer. Mm-hmm. You, Demarcus might look at the situation and say, you know, this this actually could be a nice situation for him with the injuries, a, a chance to kind of rehab his value a little more if he, if he likes the culture and the system. But if if there's a significant money difference elsewhere, uh, you you imagine he'll go that direction. The the thing is though, so if if that happens and if the Warriors really aren't able to fill out this roster in a way that significantly improves it from what it was this year because you can't take this year's team take away durant and clay and again expect them even to make the playoffs uh let alone contend for anything um then i think you pivot the other direction and you basically find a way to shut down curry and draymond green earlier give them that kind of sabbatical year because those guys have been playing 100 games a year for the last five years they're not getting any younger uh and and this this is what it takes for for like I said, if you can be this short term dynasty, you can be like the early two thousands Lakers that like once it was over, it was over. You can be the Heat I mean, it's the same thing with those teams. It's like once the run ends, once you have this kind of crushing finals loss and the injuries are mounting, it just falls apart. If you want to prolong this thing and be more like the Spurs, you need that David Robinson's out, we're gonna draft him Duncan. You need that we're going to trade one of our veterans for a young Kawhi Leonard type of, you need that type of secondary hit, get that young infusion of of another big time young player. Um, Now the Warriors missing the playoffs still doesn't do anything close to ensuring that they get a guy like that there. I mean, but, but that's the type of infusion of young talent. You need to start stretching this thing out a little bit. Uh, and then you get into all these questions about, you know, well, what about trading, uh, kind of adding to your young core. Draymond Green is a guy who is going to be a free agent a year from now, and maybe he's not going to be, it might not be prudent to sign him to a five-year max when you're already paying max contracts to Steph, Clay, and KD. Maybe you flip him at the trade deadline for, for some young talent to to kind of bolster these high-level trio you'll still have moving forward there's 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 so many possibilities and directions this thing could
0: go yeah you know you mentioning the Warriors missing the playoffs even with Steph and and Draymond I think would surprise a lot of people to, to hear but I agree with you I think that team would be again extremely limited you know a, a lack of two-way players a lack of shooting a lack of depth and also you know you, you not only factor in uh you know, if if Steph or Draymond go down for any amount of time, you know that if if Steph got hurt without Clay or Durant, that offense would be arguably the worst in the in, in the entire league. And yeah. you know, Draymond, as good as he was in these playoffs, has uh, you know during the regular season was was not nearly as impactful.
1: I, I mean, the Western Conference is is really good, there, right? Like we saw. It the Lakers missed the playoffs with LeBron James by, by quite a large margin. We saw the Pelicans miss the playoffs with Anthony Davis and Drew Holiday. I mean, there, there was obviously were other circumstances going on with both of those teams. But, like, having one elite player and and a second All-Star even uh, is no guarantee that you're going to be a playoff team when you have... I mean, I, I said it before, Jacob Evans, Damian Jones, and, Andre, and a 36-year-old Andre Iguodala is the rest of your roster. Um, so... It's it's going to be tough sailing, and maybe you don't push for even if you're in contention. Maybe you don't push for that eight seed uh, if if you know you're, you're looking at it ahead and you're looking at the rehab of Clay and KD, and you see okay, these guys might get back in May, and and we don't know what they're going to look like. Then maybe maybe you shut down Steph Curry early and and, and just kind of go that route. I, it'll be fascinating to see. That doesn't seem like kind of in the DNA of this Warriors team, but. Uh, might be
0: the most prudent approach yeah might hurt uh steve kerr who's got the uh the number one winning percentage in the history of the nba i'm sure he wants to hold on to that (laughs) but uh but yeah it's a it's a that's an interesting approach and you know the the talk about these injuries also maybe partially being or, or happening because of the fact that they've been on these five years of really long playoff runs you know it might be good for the bodies of of you know, Steph and Draymond and, and as you said, Clay or Durant if they come back near the end of the season to just, you know, not have to go through that crazy grind and then and then push more for the twenty twenty one season. And but then, you know, the the other concerns about that is, you know, with this dynasty, even prior to these injuries to Durant and Thompson, the thought was, oh the dynasty, the dynasty might end in a few years just because of, you know, age related decline.
1: Yeah, exactly, and and that timeline gets pushed up when you have two guys suffer, you know, major lower body injuries that you know year long injuries. Uh, a, a torn Achilles is, is is the worst injury in basketball, and a torn ACL is is not as bad these days, but is is still one of the worst you can have. Um, that I mean, I I see a guy like Kevin Durant as someone who's going to decline as gra- gracefully as any player maybe ever uh, because I've always said this and maybe I've even said it on this podcast before, but I think like 36, 37-year-old Kevin Durant is going to be better than prime Dirk Nowitzki because you take away all all of that guy's athleticism and he's still as big as Dirk, has as smooth a jumper, as much skill. Um, I mean, that's not true anymore, right? Like we might see that version of him Come a lot earlier, and, and we, we, we may we might not even see the version. Kevin Durant might be a permanently changed player, uh, but that being said, I just think even without the mobility or, or the, the vertical athleticism, uh, this guy would be one of the an all-time great player. That's how how much extra talent that he has. Clay Thompson is another guy who I think will uh, you know if if the injury takes away his athleticism uh how much will it hurt him right he's he's not super reliant on that athleticism to begin with he's a he's a pure form jump shooter, a very strong solid defender. he uses his size to gain an advantage uh, that size isn't going anywhere. That being said, I, I don't know enough about the mechanics of, of a jump shot to to say what the, the ACL will do to that but he, he uses his legs. I mean, so, so who knows what kind of player he'll be. Um, it, it would be pretty surprising to see either of these guys ever reach their previous levels just because they're, they're not 25. They're not 25 year olds who are going to come back at, at 27. They're 29 and 30 year olds who are going to come back in, into their early 30s here.
0: Yeah, I think that's the that's the biggest concern for me, you know, post these injuries for these guys is, you know, Clay and Durant have been known as, you know, above-average defenders, especially when they're locked in. And that might not be the case from here on out for the rest of their career. You know, that, that lateral mobility, that quickness might uh, might be sapped. Uh, but, you know, I, I do think that Durant, as you said, will still be good. He's He's not going to lose any height from this injury. He's still going to have that sweet shooting stroke. Uh, It will be fascinating. You know, you comparing him to prime Dirk Nowitzki I think is interesting. But Dirk, at least for the entirety of his life, practiced with the fact that he wasn't much of an athlete. Um, So Durant, it will be a a big-time adjustment if he can't blow by defenders anymore and they can just consistently pressure up on him.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's 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 an excellent point, and maybe he'll he'll have to make that mental adjustment during this rehab process to change his game. I think, I think he has the skill set of Dirk. He doesn't quite have the frame, uh, so so that could be an issue there. But uh, I, I think you know, given a seven footer with an all time you know the shooting range, the skill, the handle, the IQ, the the litany of moves, uh, the footwork, all of that. I think you're still probably talking about like a top five or at the very least top ten player, as, as long as the rehab goes well. Even if he's even if the Achilles zaps the athleticism that it normally does, um, so that's if you if you pair a guy like that with Steph Curry, who maybe by the time Durant's back, he's also kind of in that five to ten range as a 32, 33 year old, uh, you can win championships with a core like that. Uh, it's, it's, again, it's going to take an infusion of more young talent because it's not going to be the four superstars in their prime that it once was. But uh, I, I do think that Golden State is not done uh, in, in the way that San Antonio wasn't done. Obviously, their, their era of just dominating the league is over
0: yeah and a lot of it also in terms of them being done or not will be determined by kevin durant's free agent decision and and uh i uh, i'm of the belief that he's still going to get a a, a lot of max offers from various teams uh, do you agree with that i absolutely
1: agree with that i think that if 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 he's going to get less offers than before it's it's by one team maybe two but but he's still gonna have plenty of options i think the reason that Golden State's odds have increased isn't so much that his options have narrowed as much as it's just it makes more sense for him uh, the, the idea of like you're, okay you're Kevin Durant you're at the height of your powers you feel like you're the best player in the world and you have every right to feel that way and you're not getting any credit I mean he wasn't he was getting very little credit for what he was accomplishing uh, uh, and, and I always understood if he wanted to leave I, I totally understood that um doesn't mean some people are different, some people don't need that kind of validation in the form of credit from the public, he does and, and that's who he is and that's totally fine that being said, that's just not the nature of his life at this point, he, he's not in a place now where he can really afford to think about I'm I'm going to go to this new team and at the height of my powers prove that I'm the best player in the world. He he needs to rehab from an injury for a year and, and then he needs to come back and, and not prove that he's the best player in the world but prove that he's still a great player, period. So, so that doesn't sound like as appealing a thing to do in New York, with no one around you, as okay, I'm healthy. I'm going into my age 30, 31 season, and uh, and I'm I'm ready to just you know lead this franchise back to prominence. It, it's a totally different thing for him now, and I think staying where you've been at, staying in that infrastructure with other great players around you that you know you're you're going to need to rely on to to help you continue to thrive, uh, just seems a lot more appealing. This is obviously. Just kind of my own way of, of looking at it, but, but that's that's what I would guess would happen.
0: Yeah, it's uh, you know that's why free agency is so fascinating. It's, it'll be interesting to see what are all of these decisions for these marquee free agents and obviously Durant is right at the top. Uh, let's transition now obviously we we both think that uh, the the Warriors playoff hopes are in question for next season, which certainly makes the Western Conference you know kind of wide open at this stage. And the Los Angeles Lakers made a big-time move trading for Anthony Davis. And uh, now they've got the likes of LeBron and AD, which is uh, arguably the best one-two combo in the entire league now.
1: Yeah, I mean, whatever version of of LeBron we see next year, whether it's last year's version, whether it's a recharged version, whether it's a slightly slower, more declined version, uh, he's still going to be one of the best players in the NBA as is Anthony Davis, and they fit together so well. So, I mean, look, I, and I, I don't know if you want to start with the Lakers or uh, or the Pelicans here, but to me, I'll just say, I guess I think the Lakers overpaid. I think they did so recklessly. I, we can get into some of the reasons why in a bit. Uh, they have a chance to win a championship next year, so regardless of any of that stuff around the perimeter or, you know, the peripheral stuff here, you uh, – you go out and get A D if, if
0: you can. Well, yeah, let me let me go into the, the specifics of the trade. I'm gonna do this off the top of my head, but uh so the uh, the Lakers acquired Anthony Davis from the New Orleans Pelicans, and in exchange they gave up Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, and Josh Hart, as well as a reverse protected 2021 first round pick. So that that essentially protects the Pelicans so that if the pick is in the top eight, the Pelicans get it, and it, if it's not, it moves to a unprotected 2022 first-round pick. Then they get a 2023 pick swap with the Lakers, and then another 2024 unprotected first-round pick, which they have the ability to defer if they don't like where that pick lands and make it the 2025 first-round pick for the Lakers. Uh, and and the really fascinating thing, as well, on top of all of that, uh, is the fact that there's a little bit of controversy over the date of the trade and when this is going to be consummated, because that can determine the Lakers' cap space. So the 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 fourth overall pick, which I forgot to mention that the the fourth overall pick in this year's draft, also it's going to New to Orleans. Too many to keep track. Of. <laughs> right, that pick uh, will obviously become a player, but that player can't be traded. Uh, or at least for his contract to be included in the trade for 30 days. So the original agreement is that this trade will be consummated on July 6th, which won't include that number four picks contract, which makes it so the Lakers don't have the matching salary in terms of taking Davis's contract in. So the difference between... Trading him on July sixth, which is currently what the deal is uh, is set as is they'll have twenty three i think and a half million around there in cap space whereas if they agreed to the deal a month after the draft at least and used that fourth picks contract in the deal, they would have upwards of thirty two and a half million, which would you know is the difference between a a uh, a max salary player in the seven and nine range and and not having that, and also if you're going to go the route of you know, just instead of getting a, just a third star, getting a bunch of rotation pieces, you know, 9 million or 10 million, the difference there is the difference between, you know, having, you know, three or four guys that, that are really good players that you can add.
1: Yeah, it, it's a it's a massive mistake, it really is, and, and it just always is baffling to me how NBA teams, like, if you don't have someone in your organization who understands the cap to this level, which, like, I... I First of all, I, d- I don't understand why you don't. But if I mean, there aren't that many people that do. It, it is extremely complicated. There are there are people that do that you can talk to before you agree to something so massive that uh, you know changes the course of, of your franchise for for the next five plus years. That being said, for the Lakers here, I, I, I almost wonder if like th- this is going to be one of those things where they go back to the negotiating table and then they try to. Fig- Fix this up, and, and David Griffin probably knew about this going in, and like he has a little leverage to maybe get even more out of this deal now, which would just be like, mind boggling. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's just it, it's just another thing, and maybe of all of the uh, Lakers dysfunction, this this one's not going to get the same the same publicity as you know Rob Pelinka telling this Heath Ledger story or whatever it might be. This 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 is clearly for basketball reasons, like maybe the biggest. Gap they have made so
0: far. Yeah, and uh, you know, you mentioned that with LeBron and A. D. this team is in win now mode, and of course LeBron, this will be his age thirty-five season. And you know, you, you do this trade obviously to increase your chances of re-signing Anthony Davis. You know, the 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 formula that the uh the Oklahoma City Thunder used in trading for Paul George and getting him into their culture and and getting him to re-sign. But in reality, you know, Ad showed massive interest in in joining the Lakers and potentially joining them as a free agent after next season. So a big part of this deal, and I think a big part of the success of the trade, if you're a Lakers fan, will will involve them being a championship contender this year. And with those uh, those mistakes made by Palenka, it's it's put it in jeopardy a little bit.
1: Well, you make a great point there because this isn't this isn't the equivalent of the Paul George trade, where it's like. What you're doing is you're getting, you're paying to get the guy in house so you can re-sign him. This is something where the Lakers knew they could have had Anthony Davis next summer, although that's never a certainty because they, they thought they could have Paul George too. And if AD had gone somewhere else, maybe he would have fallen in love with it there. But but this was much more about the value of this season in and of itself, right? Like, frankly, even if they do re-sign him, this still might be their best chance to win a championship with him but because of lebron's age so yeah it's a massive mistake now that being said they still uh we'll see what happens this thing this thing could things could change with with the details and then uh even if they don't there still are opportunities to fill out a roster they can they had less uh kind of less to work with last year um than they, than they will this year and I don't think they can utilize what they do have any worse than they did filling out their roster last year so uh, there, there is still a possibility that they're going to get like you said even if it's the 23 million you can get another very good player on that and then fill out with minimums you can still have room exception or you can get a few mid-tier guys I would, I would personally say you should go for that that third star if possible which obviously the space makes things tricky uh, you know, is, is Chris Middleton a guy that you can you can get for that number? I I don't know. I don't think uh, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it's rough. It, it's rough. I'm, I'm looking for ways to uh, say that there's there's still a chance here. I mean, what what kind of players do you think? Let's say they let's say they stay at the 23 number. What what's like the best player in that range? oh <sighs>
0: Man, I I would need to look more into the the free agents. I haven't done much as far as that's concerned. But if if I'm working with twenty three million, and you know, you you talk about the the top tier guys like your Jimmy Butler, your Tobias Harris, your Kemba Walkers, your Chris Middleton's. If 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 they're not going to sign for that, then I would I would opt more for the get three or four guys in that seven to eight million range. Uh, and, do you think
1: that like uh, what about like? Malcolm Brogdon throwing him an offer sheet. Is that the kind of guy that you could maybe get in there?
0: That's the the concern. There is being a restricted free agent. You've got to wait on that for several days, and then potential other targets that you have might sign elsewhere. So that that's a that's a challenging proposition. Although I like Malcolm Brogdon, his catch and shoot ability is nice. Um, the you know if I'm Palinka and I've got to throw in uh, you know more assets. To, to get this done it would depend on what the more would would imply, but if you can throw in just a couple of seconds to to get that trade pushed back to get you to the thirty two million and give you an opportunity out of Jimmy Butler, I think you've got to do it
1: yeah yeah you do you you have to try to get that space back that, that that's that's for sure i mean I'm looking now like Harrison Barnes, maybe, you know, do you do a one-year balloon payment for a, a Nikola Mirotic, something like that. But those are the kind of guys you're, you're really targeting given the new cap environment. You're right, Middleton in, in this cap environment is more of a, a $30 million guy than, than a 23. So uh, it, it's going to be fascinating kind of what they do from here. Um, I, I do think, I mean, I don't know. Do you have anything more on the Lakers? I, I have a lot of thoughts on the New Orleans side of this as well.
0: Yeah, let's get to it.
1: Well, so I just, I just love what, what David Griffin did here. Um, I, I was always extremely against the idea of, of them holding on to AD and tried it going into the season, seeing if it worked out. And that, that was before I knew he'd get a return like this, even if it was much less of a return. I just felt like, like you, you want to start Zion's career off on the right note, not with, hey, Zion, here's, here's this guy who was our number one pick seven years ago who is doing everything he can to get out of here and and you're going to kind of be around that um bring him into a situation where it's like a bunch of guys who are young players on on his timeline sure but also just it, there's not this expectation of what's going to happen with AD are we going to be a contender like
0: well and you si- you signify to him that you're our guy
1: right exactly that yeah so so just all of that stuff is like that's why stepping in and just and getting this thing done and not only getting it done before the season but you get it done pre-drafts so you have full control of that number 4 pick and you you hit on this window where before other dominoes start falling and teams start falling out of the race for AD and, and assets get pulled that this this was peak value and it, and it, you could say well it was, that's obvious and Griff isn't a genius for that but how many GMs actually are not stubborn enough or able to convince themselves like you can't you can't sell this guy on staying. It takes a lot of humility and uh, and flexibility to to get that done.
0: Yeah, and you know to speak to the assets that uh, that Griffin was able to acquire. Not only are the young players for the Lakers, I still like them. I think at the very worst, those guys are solid rotation pieces. And uh, I think you know, especially with Ingram, he's still got an upside to be an All Star caliber player in this league. Uh, and you know you you're talking about guys that are it's still in their very early 20s they've still got a lot of room to grow and develop but then the assets being able to essentially control the Los Angeles Lakers draft assets from 2021 to 2025 when LeBron will be 37 to 40 years old is is hugely valuable and you know it it uh, it makes you th- go back and and think about that that Celtics Nets trade where obviously no one on the on the Nets realized that these unprotected picks that they were giving up were going to be, you know, number three, number three, number eight overall in the draft. And, uh, you know, that's what can happen when you don't protect these picks. And it's unbelievable that he was able to get, you know, essentially four straight years of draft assets with, with no protections.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know like I said, I think Griffin did an amazing job here, but I have no idea how he convinced the Lakers that he had that kind of leverage because I mean, this is all about that Brooklyn disaster scenario, right? Where like, if things go the way the Lakers expect it to go, then this doesn't really come into play so much. But LeBron James is getting near the end of his career. He could suddenly break down next year. If he breaks down, Anthony Davis doesn't, he's not going to, they can't even extend him right now, or they're not going to. So, he could be gone in a year and if, if Anthony Davis is gone in a year and, and LeBron is just like totally past his prime by that point uh, I mean he already is but if, if he's no longer an elite player then uh, I mean this is just a total disaster where the Lakers like Brooklyn are, are just this awful team going into next decade and don't have any of their draft picks to show for it and, and I mean flipping that back around to New Orleans I mean, well, wow. like, like Boston was, was on the receiving end of that Brooklyn trick, but they did not have Zion Williamson to add those assets to.
0: Right. It's, uh, it's, it's really fantastic, uh, you know, to, to have to have a guy in the draft, that, and again, we'll get to more of our thoughts on, on the draft in general, but to have a guy that most people think is a franchise-level, a franchise-changing type player, and then to be able to have all these assets in the future to, to continue to build around him, uh, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of there's been rumors that Griffin is is still talking with other teams about trading that number four overall pick but uh, I'm curious what what you would do in that position would you draft a guy that you think complements Zion and then also what would you do with Drew Holiday who's a guy that doesn't necessarily fit Zion's timeline
1: yeah you know I'm 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 in favor of keeping a veteran around just to kind of stabilize things a little bit i don't know if drew holiday is necessarily that guy That that's something that's going to depend on a lot of factors like first of all do they trade that pick or or if they use it who do they use it on right do you take a a darius garland and and then you really don't need to have lonzo and garland and drew holiday uh, or, or do you take a wing i'm i'm not even sure if i necessarily keep lonzo around because the fact is that as as fun as you know those two guys would be in transition and and potentially lethal on defense uh, you you need three quality shooters around them and and a lot of times you can say oh well, well you just put three shooters around them but needing to put a specific kind of player around your two young guys is, is so limited right because now it's like all of these assets you have all of these picks these potential future picks now you have to use those on specific kind of players and what if the draft Shakes down a certain way, where the clear best player available is another guy who can't shoot. But you already have two of those, and a third, really, even in Brandon Ingram, who needs the ball in his hands, even though he's a slightly better shooter. Uh, then you, then you are really limiting your your directions to build your team. So I don't even know if you keep those young Lakers guys around, and and if you trade Holiday. There's there's so many moving parts here that, that uh,
0: anything wouldn't surprise me. Well, yeah, and you mentioned needing three shooters on the floor. Yeah, the fact that you you know, even if you like Brandon Ingram more than Lonzo, which I personally do, uh, he's uh, you know, he's a guy that uh, him and Zion would be two basically non shooters, or at least Ingram. uh, You know, he he's shot an okay percentage at certain seasons, but he doesn't have the volume. Uh, You know, he shows a lot of hesitancy. So yeah, I'm in, I'm in total agreement that that Lonzo to me would be a guy that I would I would continue to look to potentially trade and and there's been rumors that you know a Lonzo plus the number four pick for like a Bradley Beal package and maybe adding a third team to throw the Wizards a little bit more of something but uh, yeah it'll it'll be really fascinating and but at the very least you know we can both agree that David Griffin now has a lot of tools in the tool chest
1: absolutely and then just to mention I mean that Beal trade to me would be just the exact kind of move you want to make right because Bradley Beal is still what 25 26 at the most uh, yeah and and he's you know well not right on Zion's timeline he's kind of that guy like I said you I like to have a more veteran player around and he's going to you know, health permitting, he had some injury problems early in his career, but he, you you would think his game will age well enough to the point where when he's around age thirty, as Zion's hitting his prime, he could still be part of, of a contender, a uh, core there. But uh, I mean, yeah, it's going to be New Orleans is going to kind of control the draft right because they're obviously going to take Zion, and uh, now that AD's off the table, we're not really going to be talking so much about the Knicks moving to number three. That number four pick. Is now kind of the the inflection point where where draft night can can get crazy.
0: Yeah, and just to clarify, Beal will be turning twenty six later this month. Uh, so yeah, he uh, he's still very young and obviously a terrific player. And you know the the combination of being able to you know rebuild and and have a lot of draft capital. But then also compete now and develop a, a good culture. I think Beal would really help with that and, and having a backcourt of Drew Holiday and Beal along with Zion, who I think will be a very productive rookie. You've got a team that can very much compete for the postseason.
1: Yeah, that that, that would be, I think, you know, health permitting a, a playoff team. Almost no question because, like you said, Zion can be a productive rookie. He's not going to be a centerpiece as a rookie, I don't think. But, uh, but if you have two elite scoring guards like that who can also defend their position. Uh, that that's a awesome trio.
0: Well yeah, and that's where those, you know, those swaps, uh, you know, people don't think of the swaps as being very valuable, but that those are huge because in the event that New Orleans does kind of go for more of a win now mode or, you know, is able to slowly build into a, a one of the better teams in the league over the next couple of years, the Pelicans even if things go well for the Lakers with, you know, Maybe LeBron stays and ages gracefully, and Anthony Davis sticks around. There's still a possibility that New Orleans might have a uh, you know a worse pick than the Lakers and are able to utilize that swap.
1: Yeah, I mean, when we talked about the challenges the Lakers will face
0: uh, fielding this roster. Uh, it, it's totally in play. So let's uh, let's move on to the uh, to the NBA draft, and we we already started talking about Zion Williamson. So you know he's the consensus uh, number one pick. Uh, You know David Griffin will be taking Zion Williamson unless there's some sort of like Joel Embiid breaking of a foot or something happening before the draft. But it uh, it seems very clear that Zion is the consensus pick. What are your thoughts on the Duke prospect?
1: Well, I mean, he'd probably have to lose a foot. I don't think <laughs> would stop him from going number one. Um, and even then, he's a pretty explosive one-leg leaper. No, I, I feel like uh, Zion, whether or not he's, you know, we can compare him to Anthony Davis, to Kevin Durant as his generational prospect, whether or not you see him uh, as in that tier, I personally don't see him in, in, the, in that AD, KD tier. I see him like a half tier below that. Just because I think there are legitimate questions about his his offensive ceiling, whereas like those guys were just uh, like so clearly going to be offensive stars. Uh, He's he's certainly one of the best, probably the best prospect we've had since Anthony Davis. I think I think that's pretty clear. And uh, this draft class is there's such a huge drop off after him. That's that's really what it is, right? Like there's a bunch of lottery. Picks in this draft. There aren't really, in my mind, any other typical top five certain guys. So, to, to, for for New Orleans to move up the way they did in this lottery is, is just incredible. Um, I don't I don't know what 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 there is to say about Zion that hasn't been said. I mean, I, we talked before the before the pod about kind of you know you you sharing your thoughts on these prospects and me reacting to them. It's funny because I've been uh, I was telling Garrett like I've been doing this work with red team scouting this year which is a great site you should definitely check out amazing in-depth scouting reports but working with all these scouts kind of doing video production social media stuff i'm just relying on them to to do a lot of, a lot of my draft research for me and uh and zion is one of the guys that i i've gotten a better look at so so i certainly have some thoughts on his game but uh but yeah what, what's your what's your take uh, on zion
0: well first i just want to uh relate to to your comment about uh, you know Relying on others, you know, I've uh, I, I've watched some video on all these prospects, but certainly, you know, throughout the season, I don't watch hardly any college basketball. So, so I'm definitely uh, behind in terms of of reviewing these these players. But uh, and, I, and I also rely a lot on uh, on the dunked on guys and and their uh, in depth scouting reports as well. So uh, I, I try to uh, look at the look look at the highlights and 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 come up with some of my own thoughts and some of my own comparisons as well. But uh, Zion, I, I think, is fantastic defensively. He's got all the tools to be a a terrific player on that end of the floor. the the length, the wingspan, protecting the rim, his his lateral movement. You you, you know, he he could switch out on some guys and do a reasonable job at the 285 pounds. He's not going to get bullied by anybody in the post. He's really a guy that uh, has all the versatility in the world to be an anchor on defense. And then offensively, you know, the jump shot is definitely a concern. I think that's what's going to hold him back from being, uh, you know, a number one scoring option on on a championship team. But if the Pelicans are able and David Griffin are able to find a guy that maybe can be a second banana, be the be the go-to guy on offense and and you know let Zion be the the pick and roll guy, the finisher and uh you know I think a lot like uh, what Anthony Davis's role will be where LeBron is the guy handling the basketball and Davis is the recipient while also being terrific on the defensive end.
1: Yeah, I mean and and that speaks to kind of how Zion whether you see him as a 4 or a 5 it, it, it's irrelevant. We we know what kind of big he needs to play with. I mean to maximize him you you want him, uh? You want him? I mean, as as much as he he can destroy people as a role man, you want him to also be able to to handle in a pick and roll with a roll man. But you but you need that guy to be more of a pop guy, right? So, we're talking about an Anthony Davis type player <laughs> would be great to pair him with a Kristaps Porzingis type player. Uh, whether whether you call Zion a four or a five, it's pretty clear that he needs to play with a big who can stretch the floor. Yeah, and uh,
0: you know. Not only that, but uh, as you stated with uh, you know earlier that they need at least three shooters. I would say it would probably be best if you have four shooters around Zion. I think uh, you know he's a guy that can be a bowling ball going to the rim, and if the floor is you know as well spaced as it can be, that will lead to his uh, you know him having as much success as he possibly can achieve. Um, moving on to uh, to and the the consensus number 2 prospect and the guy that I think uh, most people have the Memphis Grizzlies selecting is Ja Morant and uh, he is a guy that 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 I also really love a lot of people are calling this a three player draft with with Zion Morant and Barrett I think it's more of a two player draft and and the the tier tier 1 is Zion tier 2 is Ja and then there's a bunch of guys that I have in the tier 3 jaw, his ability to handle the basketball, his unbelievable passing skill—he's got great athleticism. And although there's some concerns over the, uh, the the jumper in terms of the release, it's a it's a lower release. He he shows NBA range and has decent touch.
1: Yeah, and then again, I mean this jump shot question keeps coming up with these guys, right? He's, he doesn't have regular mechanics. I I think they're fixable, uh, but, but he, he doesn't really shoot well off movement. Um, he he doesn't have a fluid, he doesn't rise up fluidly or again, with the consistency, uh, you mentioned the low release. There's just a lot of issues here. and, And I feel like, I mean, we're done talking about Zion, but it's the same thing. This isn't just the ball not going in. This is clear, a clear shooting problem. You worry about it so much more with a guy like Ja, because because he's going to he's a guard, and and a guard who can't shoot is a lot more detrimental than a big who can't shoot. I mean, Zion is is not much bigger, uh, height wise. He's about hundred pounds heavier, and, and the way he gets up and with his length, he can he can play center. Whereas as Ja Morant is probably a point guard in the NBA, maybe a combo guard.
0: Yeah, and and the shooting question, I think, is pretty interesting, and it goes to, you know, some some just general questions of how you evaluate players. Uh, I I thought it was kind of interesting in terms of, uh, you know, looking at the red team scouting page on John Morant. They really had a low rating for him on shooting off the catch. I think they gave him a 4.3 out of 10, and, uh, you know, 10 obviously being, you know, super elite like a Steph Curry, I would imagine. Um, But, you know, the percentages would, would speak to him being a little bit better than that, and again, the lower release point is a concern. Uh, but you know, you talk about a, a comparison that I have in terms of the shot would be like a guy like Shea Gilgis Alexander. You know, he's got a little bit of a slower release, uh, doesn't doesn't look necessarily that great off the catch, but he shot thirty six percent, and that slow release, you know, maybe limits him in terms of volume but because of the skills that John Morant has as a ball handler, driver and passer, i think if if teams are able to run him off the line, he's going to be effective.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And just speaking to to your point about him him shooting off movement, i mean it, it is definitely a sample size thing, right? Because one one college season just uh is it can be really hard to uh, to gauge from we've seen it one NBA season. I mean we were just talking about Brandon Ingram earlier, right? Here's a guy who's, who's shot what, thirty nine percent before. Uh, but but that doesn't necessarily mean you, you trust him as a floor spacer. Jaw just doesn't have the consistency from what I understand. Again, I'm I, I'm not scouting these games but from from the other scouts at Red Team. It's it's just a consistency of the mechanics issue. Uh, so so I'm not gonna, you know, confirm or deny that with, with my own opinion, but but if there is a concern, it it, it is certainly not about the numbers but but about you know, projecting forward over a larger sample.
0: Yeah, and and another reason why I'm pretty high on him is even if the jump shot, even if those concerns are well founded and he struggles with that, I still think he'll be a a low end starting caliber point guard with all the other things we we've already mentioned. Um, the The other point guard that uh, that is talked about being in the in the top five mix is Darius Garland, and uh, you know I, I think he's really interesting because he's kind of to me, the opposite of John Morant, where he doesn't have as tight of a, of a handle. He doesn't have the the passing skills. He doesn't quite have the athleticism and the size. But the, the shooting concerns are not there with Garland. His shot looks great. His shot reminds me a lot of Jeff Teague. It's very quick. It's a little bit of a low release, but it's so quick and smooth that uh, that's not really a concern and he's got the nba range he he projects to me to be a great off the dribble three-point shooter which is incredibly valuable in the nba as we've seen with guys like steph curry damian lillard and of course one of the best rookies last year in Trey young
1: well i mean you you kind of made the point that i was going to make there uh you alluded to it which is that you don't need to be steph curry to be a super effective off the dribble shooter because we're talking you know a guy who's shot 43 44 percent in his career dame lillard's more of a 37 percent shooter right trey young over the course of the year he, he was i think over 40 down the stretch but uh was in the 30s Kemble walker uh, i mean you 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 don't need to be an elite pure shooter to be an elite off the dribble three-point shooter that can warp defenses And and garland Uses his handle, right? He he uses his kind of footwork and quick release. Uh, even though you said it might not be the, the perfect release point, and he's already a smaller player, but uh, he, he can he can kind of you know square up and shoot from from 30 feet out. He has all of the little tools that you need to to be an effective off the dribble shooter. James Harden, right? Another guy, 35, 36 percent three point shooter, uh, made what the second most threes in NBA history this year um so so we're at that point in the game where like the three-point shot is so valuable and players are are kind of developing these skills around getting off threes off the dribble and expanding their range that the percentage and this is this kind of goes back to the Morant thing each prospect we talk about I keep kind of relating to the previous one uh but this is why volume is so important right is that like Volume shows the effectiveness of a skill and in how it can help a team win games because how much you can use your jump shot is extremely important.
0: Yeah, and you know not only does Jeff he remind me of Jeff Teague in terms of the you know the shooting form, but his quickness as well. He you know Jeff Teague I think one of his elite strengths, especially going back to his Hawks days, was his ability to get to the rim and. And uh you know Garland certainly has that. I think the the concerns with Garland will be you know teague I think has developed a really nice floater in that mid range area. Garland will have to work on that, and obviously you know he doesn't have the greatest of size. I think his size is is similar to the to that of steph Curry uh so you know Steph has despite the fact that he's turned himself into i think of an above average defender. He still is attacked. He's been attacked in those finals series against uh, against the Cavs, and I'm sure Garland will be a target as well.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, so much of this draft, as we get into some of these other guys, is going to come down to fit. Uh, there's just not a perfect prospect. I mean, I mean Zion's not a perfect prospect, but there there's not uh, the rest of these guys are have such clear flaws either in terms of a weakness in their game or a lack of of high end strength that. It's, it's just going to come down to fit and garland is a guy who i think when when the Lakers were sitting there at four i think he was he looked like a lock to me now I could see him going anywhere from from three to seven in this draft
0: yeah and you know the the whole intrigue about the pelicans and whether or not they'll keep their pick i think garland would be a very interesting and intriguing candidate to select it for to pair with Zion because you know if you've got if if Garland hits his ceiling as an offensive player and he's a high 30s or even 40% three-point shooter off the dribble, um, or as you said, if he hits that Damian Lillard range, that's going to open things up for Zion and make them an incredibly devastating offense. So it'll be fascinating to see. He's certainly a guy that I like a lot. Um, let's talk about the other big point guard that's projected in the top ten. You know, going into the draft, I'd heard a lot of talk that this wasn't a very a uh, good point guard class, but I think it's pretty solid, and uh, it includes a guy by the name of Kobe White from North Carolina. Uh, he's uh, he's got some concerns. He he doesn't show great uh, passing vision at times, uh, and you know he's he's uh, you know despite the fact that he's I think 6'5", four or six five, he's got the standing reach of similar to to JJ Redick, uh, but. His jumper looks pretty good, especially off the catch.
1: Yeah, he's 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 a scorer, right? Like he's 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 a point guard who can score for you, and I don't mean that in the like take thirty Russell Westbrook, right? Take thirty shots, score thirty points. Like, he can be an efficient scorer. He can shoot off the catch. He can shoot off the dribble. He's athletic. He's not the playmaker, the the passer that Jaw is, and uh, I I don't see him necessarily having the same floor you mentioned it with jaw as a guy who like he's going to be an nba caliber point guard because of his instincts uh you you worry about that a little more with a guy like like kobe white and then with with the, the lack of wingspan is he going to be more exploitable in the defensive end? uh th- there are more question marks with him but he's 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 a guy who if, if you bring him in as a i mean I don't know how you feel about this because they go about it differently, but, like, I almost see some, some Colin Sexton in him. I know you he's a guy you watch closely.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. And Sexton, of course, uh, over, over the course of his rookie season, did a really good job sh- shooting threes off the catch and playing off the ball a little bit, which uh, is a fascinating point why I think, you know, just because the Cavs like Sexton as, as their point guard doesn't mean they should shy away from potentially drafting Darius Garland if he's there at five, even though they play the same position because of the fact that they both project to be good shooters and can play off of each other. But yeah, he that, that's a really interesting comparison and, and some of the things that I think Sexton struggled with in terms of his ability to finish at the rim over length I think White will struggle with that as well. I think White's, you know, that standing reach is a bit of a problem there. And, you know, watching his game against uh, Kentucky, and, you know, Kentucky always throws out NBA length and athleticism out there on the floor. He did struggle a little bit. He had some, you know, some some lousy turnovers and, and struggled to finish and at times just looked overwhelmed out there on the floor.
1: Yeah, and I mean... Sexton is a guy who I had a lot of questions about going into the draft, and, and the jump shot was one of them, and because that one hit, a lot of the others come together. Now, we again, we still don't know if that jump shot's going to go in moving forward. These things, we, we need more time to be sure about these things. But, uh, but Kobe White's a guy that I think just does have a bit of a lower floor because, not because the shot doesn't look good, but just because his game requires it to be good.
0: Yeah, and the one thing I I like a little bit more about White as opposed to Sexton is I uh the the highlights I saw his defensive effort is a lot higher than Sexton at times. Uh so he projects to me to be You know, I think Sexton was arguably the worst defensive player in the NBA last season. Uh, I I don't think White is nearly that bad, even if the standing reach will limit him from being like, uh, you know, an above average defender. I think he he puts in the effort and the hustle to to at least be okay on that end of the floor. So, yeah, I see him as a guy that, yeah, doesn't have a super high ceiling. I, I see him... Uh, you know, as a reasonably safe bet because of the off-the-ball shooting. I think the situation is going to be important, too. You know, uh, a team like, uh, you know, the, there, are ta- there are rumors that he might go to Phoenix or Chicago, and those teams with Zach Levine and Devin Booker are teams that have some some other players that can handle more of the shot creation, and I think that'll be, that'll be a, a better transition to the NBA for Kobe White, where he can play off the ball and, and utilize his strengths a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I mean the, the point guard range of this draft is, is pretty. I mean, Jaw's going to Memphis. We talked about that. So it's really that four through seven group. There's there's three teams there: New Orleans, uh, Phoenix, and Chicago that that are you know in the mix for point guard. I don't know if, if the Cavs. You think maybe could even get into that mix too, even even with Sexton. I, I, I I'll, I'll defer to you on that. But uh, I think these these uh, last three guys we talked about really are or or I guess rather these last two guys we talked about are are clearly going to go in that range if you're a team like Chicago though if you're kind of the the odd team out there because you came in at number seven which is pretty bad luck I mean that's the team you start thinking do they do they look to move up because uh, their their roster and I know we're, we're kind of just talking about these prospects more than draft strategy here but they're they're pretty set at, at every other position. I mean, it's really unfortunate for them that they kind of just came in one, maybe one spot too late.
0: Yeah, and if you see a, a team like New Orleans or Cleveland, you know, take a point guard and then two of the the top three guys are off the board by four or five, you're absolutely right. The Bulls are going to be sweating quite a bit because, uh, yeah, it, it seems very much like they they're going to draft for fit here this year and. And their point guard position is a, a clear area of need. Uh, let's move more towards the the wings in this draft. I think this is this is fascinating, and and uh, you know the, the 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 top guy on a lot of people's board, and and again a, a consensus top three pick going to the New York Knicks at three is R.J. Barrett, a six seven shooting guard from Duke. He's got uh, he's got some offensive talent. He's uh, he's able to score, get to the rim. He, he seems to be a guy that uh, is very left-hand dominant. Is good driving to his left, uh, but and you know has a little bit of a, a pull-up game as well. But he also led the NCAA in uh, in offensive fouls this season, which is a little bit concerning because the NBA the defense is going to get even better, and if he's struggling to uh, create separation at the college level, uh, it, it's going to get a lot harder coming up soon. Yeah, I mean Barrett. Barrett's really polarizing,
1: particularly uh, within within the the red team scouting Slack channel. Uh, th- there have been people saying, "Oh, I wouldn't I wouldn't draft this guy with one of my sixty draft picks." Um, you know, I think I think that's hyperbole, but but it just it speaks to kind of how teams lo- how how people look at fit in the NBA today. How people think that you know, which I agree with in general. That kind of on ball skills. Uh, are, are overrated when a guy doesn't necessarily have the best approach doesn't have there's questions about the jump shot doesn't have the effort that you're looking for necessarily on the defensive end there's just so many questions about RJ uh, at the same time you can, you can look at him as having all these flaws he's also kind of sneakily well rounded like he's a better passer than you think he's a, he's a better shooter maybe than, than it looks like at Duke last year because of some system stuff he clearly can finish in the lane Uh, he's a he's a really good transition player Um, he's got NBA size there's a lot to like about him it's just like you know the the fabric of what a player is like I mean Andrew Wiggins is is a name that I'll throw out there Uh, like does does any of this matter you know these these discrete skills if if we've seen evidence of it just not coming together in, in the way that we wanted it to and then even if we've seen that evidence, how valuable is is that evidence in the college game? Because the NBA is a different game. They're, they're, to me, he's he's kind of the most uh, the most interesting lottery pick in
0: in that regard. Yeah, his his rebounding is solid as well. He he does a good job of uh, utilizing some euro steps and and footwork and fundamentals to to get to his spots. Uh, the the. The comparison to DeMar DeRozan is interesting because they both are pretty much the exact same measurements. They're both about 6-7 with uh, only 6'9 wingspan, which isn't that great given their height. Uh and they have similar body types as well and also similar shooting concerns. Uh the the way, you know, Barrett becomes better than DeMar DeRozan and I would imagine if teams are drafting him at 3, they want him to be or they are expecting him to be better than DeMar DeRozan. Would be if the three-point shot falls, uh, because that's the the big pitfall. Even though DeRozan became a, a pretty decent mid-range shooter, the fact that teams were able to go under screens against him for for his whole career is was a big reason why he's never been, you know, that that number one guy on a championship-caliber team.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and so then you get into the question of okay, if you're the New York Knicks, uh, are are you looking to like I mean, I mean there, there's so many questions with the, the Knicks in general, right? And, and you could kind of say they've got a guy at all these positions. Uh, you, you know, Kevin Knox, disappointed as a rookie, but they did just use their top pick on him. How well does R.J. Barrett fit with him? Uh, you know, Mitchell Robinson is probably the only guy I would really care about in that regard. I'd probably go best player available other than taking a center, and, and there aren't really any centers in this range. Um, but there are players I like more than Barrett even at this position so uh so coming coming up at number three for new york is really not not the best outcome unless unless they're unless someone wants to move up for rj the way i look at it because it, it seems like the writing's on the wall that this is the move for them
0: yeah it's uh as i said i think you know, you've got tier one is Zion, tier two is Ja, and then tier three is a bunch of guys. Barrett is included, but yes, I, I also would not have him at the top of that list. Uh, a, guy, a couple of guys that I actually have a little bit above Barrett are DeAndre Hunter and uh, Jarrett Culver. Now, Hunter is a guy that doesn't project to me to have a, a super high ceiling, but he might be outside of Zion the safest pick in this draft because he he seems to have good mechanics on the jumper. He hit a good percentage, despite not having a great volume. But I think a lot of that is just due to the fact that uh, the team he was playing for, Virginia, played at such a slow pace. Uh, But uh, he also has, at 6'7", and over a 7-foot wingspan, the defensive skills to guard 1-5. through
1: Yeah, I'm I'm higher on, on DeAndre Hunter's ceiling than I think a lot of people, because... To me to me the only the only reason that his ceiling isn't perceived as high as as a guy like RJ is age um, and and I mean yes ball skill too but I, I just I don't view on ball skill necessarily as being as connected to ceiling as it often is like I think that this guy has a higher defensive ceiling than than RJ Barrett I think he is probably a better shooter I like his post game a lot uh, that that was something that really stood out to me producing this video of him and and looking at some of the film that, that the red team guys put together. Um, he's got a very versatile game. He's a really smart cutter. He knows how to drift into spaces as an off ball player. He's clearly a piece rather than like a go-to scorer. So if, if that is, if that is what we're talking about, when we talk about ceiling, I I, I suppose it's, it's lower than some guys like like a 100% outcome is being an MVP type player. Yeah. I, I, impossible for me to see DeAndre Hunter getting there. But uh, I, I think none of these guys that's really realistic outside of outside of Zion Williamson. So to me, his ceiling as being an integral part of a championship team might actually be higher than uh than almost anyone else in this class.
0: No, I, I completely agree with you and yet when I said high ceiling, I'm I'm more talking about, okay, is this is this guy capable of being a number one or even number two option on an offense? And I, I don't think he is. But he certainly is a guy that that could theoretically, as you mentioned, with his jump shot, with his post game, with his ability, a little bit to attack off the dribble, he could average 16 points a game and be an elite all defensive level player. And and as you said, that is uh, that is exactly what these teams competing for championships desperately need on their roster. Even if that doesn't mean that 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 guy is a is their best player. So yeah, I, I'm in complete agreement with you that uh, that. That Hunter is a guy that that I would love to draft, and I think the Pelicans would be, uh, you know, I, I would say that would be my top choice if I'm David Griffin if he's available at four uh, to to pair with Zion because you know you talk about in two or three years Zion at the five and and uh, Hunter at the four that's about as modern of a basketball team as you can build around.
1: Yeah, and again, if if they are able to get that like pick and pop big to kind of fill out that front court rotation, so that you can slide, because like, you could slide those guys down, Hunter at the three, Zion at the four. Uh, um, but I agree that their natural positions probably are the four for Hunter and the five for Zion. Uh, that, that that would be super interesting. I also think if DeAndre Hunter is still available at six, while well, Phoenix has been talked about as like they need a point guard for the last however many years, uh, and There'd be a lot of jokes about the Suns drafting another another wing, right? Uh, I, I I think that you shouldn't worry about those things, and and that DeAndre Hunter is also the kind of player that they need next to Devin Booker to kind of handle that that defensive
0: burden. Yeah, and Hunter is a is the same for the same reason I like Hunter is the same reason I liked Mikhail Bridges out of Villanova last year. He just translates well as a shooter and a defensive player, and and I agree with you pairing uh you know Bridges and Hunter together. Uh, at the wing spots with Devin Booker, you know you could do a lot worse if you're uh, if you're a Suns fan. Uh, the other wing that uh, you know there, there's a few more, but the other guy that I think is projected in the top five range is Jared Culver out of Texas Tech. Uh, you know it was it was interesting to me listening to to the dunked on podcast because uh, Nate and Danny were very low on him as a player, uh, but uh, you know looking at at uh, Red Team scouting, they they seem pretty pretty content with uh, pretty much every aspect of his game. He seems very well-rounded. Uh, and, you know, I, I really like his competitive nature. He seems like a guy that, that hustles. And he also, between his freshman and sophomore year, looked to uh, tweak his jumper and improve the release time. And, and I'm always uh, excited in terms of, of young prospects to see that, oh, these guys are actively working to improve on their game. To me, that's a that's a very positive sign.
1: Yeah, you know it's it's funny because I actually I haven't heard the uh, the Nate and Danny scouting report on Culver, but I, I I know that when I have disagreed with with them in the past has usually been about guys that um, they and look they if the red team guys look at more film than I do they do as well, uh, but it's it's just been a feel thing for me where like I watch a guy and I feel like he gets it and I feel like he he looks like an NBA player to me I I like something I see in his mentality um, and, and I think they kind of stray away from that stuff a little bit and now i'm not saying that that's their flaw because maybe i overvalue that stuff but culver's just a guy that when i do lock in on college basketball which is in march and april uh he just hopped, he just like hopped off the screen to me right because he's the centerpiece really uh of the uh, well not the centerpiece of the defense but of, of the perimeter defense for for the best defense in the nation by by quite a bit and uh and he's able to do that while taking on pretty much he's their their only real offensive option—and um, and is able to lead a team to to the uh, to the championship of the NCAA tournament. Uh, it makes me think of Clay Thompson. I mean, he he doesn't play anything like Clay Thompson, but just seeing a guy that can expend that kind of energy on one end and then do the same on the other end—that uh, I feel like that's a, a winning player, even if you can question, you know. It, the fit with the jump shot or that kind of thing uh, I mean he, he's switchable he can play the two or the three um, I, I, there, I, there's just a lot to like about Culver right? playmaking he, he's, he's one of my favorite prospects in this draft I, I think before kind of we uh, before John Morant Kind of snuck in as like the only consensus number two, and I kind of started to just accept that thinking. And maybe I'll have to go back and analyze this a little more to see wh- where I stand on it now. I I, I actually like Culver more than any non-Zion uh, prospect.
0: Yeah, I really like him too. And and just to clarify, the the dunked on guys, their their main concerns was that he didn't have any you know anything in particular that he was a was a huge strength for him. And they also had a, a big concern about the jump shot. He does have a little bit of a hitch. Uh, you know, and, and sometimes he shoots kind of on the way down. Uh, you can see right at the top of his release there is a bit of a hesitation there. So that's something that uh, he'll have to iron out. But I think one thing that uh, that Nate and Danny maybe don't value enough is guys that don't have any weaknesses. And you look at a guy like Al Horford who has, who has made a, a very fine career for himself. You know, I, I think he's a player that, yeah, you look at him and say, oh, yeah, he doesn't have any strengths that really jump off the page but he's good at everything, and that makes you a great player in the NBA.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, because Culver very well might not become a lockdown defender, but the ability to provide, you know, plus value for a team on that end, while taking on an offensive load, again, he might not be the most efficient scorer even. But, like, if we're talking about, um, imagine if, you know, I mean, I brought up Andrew Wiggins as kind of a negative comparison for RJ Barrett earlier, but imagine if Andrew Wiggins was, like, a plus defender rather than a an extreme minus defender, right? Imagine if Andrew Wiggins was, like, slightly inefficient versus extremely inefficient. Imagine if he was both of those things together. Now you're talking about... Going from one of the least useful players in the NBA to a, a wing that every team would, would love to have on their roster, so there are these small margins where like you don't have to be great at something, to your point, uh, but being being decent at a lot of things, and I'd say you know definitely good at certain things, um, it can can just be the difference between being a a highly successful lottery pick and a bust.
0: Yeah, and and I project the jump shot. I mean from. From the looks of things, and obviously this is a is a tough th- thing to predict, but uh, you know a, a lot of um, you know the the player's work ethic goes into that, and it, and from what I've heard, he's got a great work ethic. He's got a high release point, and he's got really good arc on his jumper. Those are two pretty good signs for me, and the and the follow through is pretty good after the hitch in his jumper. The follow through looks good to me. He's got good rotation, so so you know. Obviously, pretty much mo- the majority of players in this draft, there's something wrong with their jump shot. It's just a matter of do you think these players are going to work on it? And again, as I mentioned earlier, there, there's already been evidence that uh, that uh, Jared Culver is going to continue to work and, and, and try to get better at that uh, at that very important skill.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like, like I said with Hunter, I mean, all of these prospects have strengths and weaknesses. I just I see. His game coming together. What I've what I saw watching him in college. What I've seen on film. It, it just it makes more sense to me in the NBA than, than a guy like RJ Barrett, where you just kind of have to to trust the discrete skills, even though you haven't seen it like produce the, the kind of basketball I want to see. Although I will just say that Duke team, like there there is a very real possibility that uh, that no one was we saw none of those players put on full display. Cam Reddish and even Zion included. Like uh, it was just such an ill-fitting team. I think a pretty poor coaching job from Mike Shashewsky. So uh, I do want to keep that possibility open, but I just I don't know if I draft a guy at number three, banking on that being the explanation from
0: from some of the confounding things we saw from RJ. Yeah, and, and speaking to some of those Duke prospects, you just mentioned Cam Reddish. He was actually the the, the last guy I looked at. I, I watched the the Mike Schmidt breakdown right before we we started this. Uh, and and he's a guy that again seems like he's got all the tools in the world to be a, an excellent player. You know, when things are going right for him, he he's very reminiscent of Paul George. You know, at at similar size and length, with similar athleticism, and you know some of those step back threes he's able to knock down. Now he shot thirty percent, so obviously the percentages are are, are very much a concern but just looking at how smooth uh, he is as a player he he looks very translatable to the NBA game
1: yeah he's a smooth jump shooter he has the frame um th- there are some like weird little things that make you worry about him right like uh he's just like i mean the inconsistency in terms of the numbers you always question but i think i think you're kind of okay there trusting that he'll he'll become a, a solid jump shooter but just the inconsistency in terms of going in and out of games I think is probably the biggest concern with him. Um, Sometimes players that have such a smooth game can, can, uh, can trick you into thinking they're not trying as hard, but it's actually just kind of their, their style. I, I, am not, I don't think that's the case with Cam. I think, I think that was a real issue and you kind of see that in terms of doing the little things, right? Like this is something that I, I certainly don't watch for closely enough when I watch, but some of the red team guys are really concerned about like his ability to Set off ball screens and kind of be engaged when you know he, he's a he's a he's a quality spot up shooter. But is he going to be a great cutter? Uh, is he does he know when to get back on defense, when to crash the glass? These kind of little things that um, if you're projecting a guy to be a role player, you worry about. Now if he's able to you know take advantage of his skills and tools to the point where he's going to be a Paul George type player, I don't think he is because I don't think he has that kind of ability to get to the paint and score uh, then you don't worry about it as much but but if he if he is going to be more of a role player you you have to you have to worry about his engagement level
0: yeah and you know not only reddish but rj barrett when i'm looking over the red team scouting reports a lot of like three out of tens in terms of the effort motor and intangible sort of categories and that obviously is a huge concern although you know also you know you can't Coach, or you can't teach the kind of athleticism and length that Cam Reddish has. Whereas, you know, if he's in the right situation with a, you know, with a good culture, potentially those effort-based things, the, that intensity, that motor, that discipline, could be, uh, could be fixed.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think any skill can be developed, right? Physical, I guess, physical traits are the only thing that can't be developed. That being said, um, I think if we look at the history of, of draft picks, like guys that come into the league with motor concerns generally always have motor concerns and, and guys that that come into the league with uh with skill concerns um generally don't develop those skills but maybe i, th- I think maybe those skills are actually more more developed developable um and, and then that kind of gets into the whole ceiling versus floor thing where does the guy who has the physical tools but you know concerns with kind of the fabric of of his game and and his his mentality does he really have a higher ceiling than the guy that doesn't have the physical tools but has the work ethic that that can turn himself into a a great player rather than uh rather than just harness harness that untapped potential it's kind of a fascinating conversation that uh that i that i love i I don't have an answer but it's one that i think is really interesting to kind of pontificate on
0: Yeah, and and GMs have the tough decision also, you know, depending on where they're drafting, you know, if you're drafting in the top 10 and you have two guys, one guy that has the ceiling to be a superstar player but also has that low floor, has some of those, you know, concerns that we've been talking about versus a guy that is more a, a sure bet but has no chance at being a superstar, you know, some teams, depending on the the talent that they have already on the roster, are going to go for the for that take that shot at that superstar, and 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 sometimes that uh, that fails spectacularly, but sometimes it pays off.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I, I know another guy that we we plan on talking about was uh, was Grant Williams. Uh, I don't know if you still want to touch on him, but he he really is kind of the most extreme example of of the what we're talking about on one end of the spectrum, kind of the opposite end of, of a Cam Reddish.
0: Yeah, uh, that I, uh, I had on my list that I was going to ask you about this because on Red Team Scouting, they absolutely love uh, Grant Williams, I believe. Last I checked, he was their second highest rated player on the board. And, you know, yes, the all of the intangible things that we talked about that are concerns for Reddish... Williams has he, he has a great motor. He hustles. He's got good basketball IQ on both ends of the floor. Um, you know he, he's going to work hard. He seems to be a good a good person and, and, and a, a good guy to have in the locker room. But at the same time, he's he's six seven. He's got a six ten wingspan. He's not you know an elite athlete. He's, to me, the skills aren't fully there either. He's not, uh, you know, an above-average shooter or ball handler. So to me, yeah, where is the upside and how does that make him, you know, the the number two prospect on the board?
1: Well, so, I mean, Williams is a guy that I admittedly have not watched much film on. Uh, I mean, I saw him in the tournament, but, I, I, you know, I haven't done a video on him. I haven't really dug into him since the draft. Uh, The red team formula essentially is, is not projecting necessarily upside or floor or, or safety or or you know it doesn't really use those terms it's more um looking breaking down the player given given right on ball off ball defense and tangible you know all that stuff like the, the question is when you put it all together who who is the most likely player to um have a high level impact in the NBA and also kind of in the short term because yeah. again, the belief of, is that, um, of, again, the, the philosophy that you can't necessarily know where these things are going to go based on conventional, uh, what you could call tropes of like, you know, physical tools mean you have a higher long-term ceiling mean that you're going to develop more over time this idea that this guy's a project versus this guy is a ready-made player i mean we you look at a guy like draymond green who fell to the second round because he had theoretically no ceiling because of his physical limitations uh some people were saying he like should have been making mvp ballots in 2016 and, and he's been uh, th- the best player on the floor in in some of the biggest games in the NBA in the last several years so yes you you know he's not scoring 20 points a game 30 points a game uh, rarely scoring 15 points a game but if you're going out there and grabbing 19 rebounds if you're dropping 12 assists uh, Grant Williams is a, is a great passer um, if you can provide floor spacing which Draymond has done off and off and Williams I think has, has certainly has the chance to do if you can be a, a centerpiece of, of a defense even if you know, you, you you lack some of the the classic defensive tools. If you can be that kind of player, uh, that's one way to look at ceiling, and and I think that it's 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 a valid way to do so. Again, so I don't necessarily, I can't say that I agree that Williams is is number two on my draft board. Um, but I also will say that you know get the red team formula. It's not necessarily a draft board as much as here is how this player grades out based on our formula and uh, and. We're not going to tweak that based on you know would I would I personally draft this player here or not?
0: Yeah, that okay. So I'm glad you you clarify that. So essentially they're they're saying you know day one this guy is probably going to be the the second best in this draft in terms of contributing to winning, and and I could certainly see that. I I wouldn't be shocked if uh, you know year one he's you know and and I don't think he's I think he's projected. Um, you know, late lottery in the in the teens range. So I, I could see a, 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 t- a playoff team having him coming off the bench and and being a contributor right away. Uh, you know, your comparison to Draymond Green, I think um, you know, is fair. He he does have the the passing chops. They're both similar. Uh, you know, they they have similar height, but but Green with his his lateral quickness and also the seven two wingspan, I think separates him. Uh, and puts him at another level in terms of where his ceiling was, as opposed to what Williams can get to. Uh, but, but yeah, he's he's certainly a player that I think is a safe bet. I just yeah would I would not be drafting him in the top ten just because he he's not going to be a guy that's going to be one of your top three players on a on a contender. Yeah,
1: and, and one other thing on that, I mean, a lot of this comes down to like valuing draft i mean what what is a draft pick for right what is a lottery pick for is it a bite at the apple to try to get a superstar i mean i think that's a fair way to look at it i think that's the uh, the prevailing way that it is looked at is like we don't know how often we're going to get to the lottery we don't you know you you need that kind of player to contend for championships so like even if there's only a five to ten percent chance that this guy becomes that kind of player that's better than taking a guy with a zero percent chance that's that's a fair valid way to look at the draft uh another way to look at it is you know this guy might have a zero percent chance at becoming that like you know best player on a championship team type of guy but if we that other 90 percent like if you go out and take rj barrett and he doesn't hit his ceiling which is going to happen nine out of ten times then you've just kind of wasted an asset, right? That's the number three pick. You've just used, you've just wasted the number three pick. If you use that number three pick on a guy like Grant Williams, even if you know ten out of ten times, you're guaranteed he's not going to become that kind of superstar. Uh, if he becomes a quality, you know, above average starter, ten out of ten times, or, or eight out of ten times, whatever it might be, because obviously no one's a sure thing. But but if if you're hitting on that pick more often than you're missing on it, then you have that asset, and that asset can help you win championships in a lot of ways, by having the player in place, by using that in trades to go get that that superstar, right? Draft picks don't only yield superstars through using them on players. Um, so so I think that that's, that's a way of looking at the draft that is a little less popular. Um, I'm certainly in favor of more teams taking that approach, and I, I know that that's a big part of why the red team scouting formula is what it is, because I think it's about thinking of these players as how they help NBA teams more than in, in abstract terms about, uh, you know, is this guy going to be a superstar? What are the odds he's going to be a superstar? Uh, ceiling, floor, that kind of thing. So d- depending on what your approach is, I mean, we, we see teams, I think like the Utah Jazz are, have been really good at kind of maximizing their assets in the draft. We see teams that have taken bites at the apple and hit like the Philadelphia 76ers. We've seen teams that have have drafted for for upside and 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 missed time after time, um, so so I think draft philosophy again super interesting, but there, there isn't really one way to to go about valuing what what is a lottery pick, right?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great point, and I think a, a perfect example and a pick that I was critical of at the time would be when the Cavs took Tristan Thompson at number four after they had just drafted Irving at one. You know, I was I was critical of it in, in large part because I just didn't think Tristan Thompson had the, the ceiling, the high ceiling, and I was proved to be right about that. You know, he was a role player, but the fact that they got a a star in Irving and then were able to take a, a safe bet on a guy that was going to be a good role player ended up being a key reason why they won the, uh, the title in 2016.
1: What, what year was Tristan Thompson drafted? Uh,
0: I believe that was 2011.
1: Yeah, so I'm pulling it up right now, so yeah, it was Tristan Thompson at four, and then Valanchunas, Jan Vesley, Bismack, Biombo, Brandon Knight, uh, were, were the next four picks there, so yeah, I mean, Kemba Walker at Ben at nine, and then Jimmer Fredette uh, rounded out the top ten, so yeah, you, you look at that draft, and uh, looks like, I mean, Thompson didn't have really the offensive potential of of some of those other guys taken, right, but uh but just just an awesome role player. Clearly the guy out of that group that you'd most like to have other than, other than Kemba Walker. Um, so, I mean, these things in retrospect, sometimes, I mean, you, you can put too much stock into that saying, Oh, it worked out this way. So now we have to take this route. Whereas, you know, maybe they could have drafted Kawhi Leonard there because they thought, I mean, he went number 15, that seems unlikely, but you think I, we see something in this guy where maybe he could be a superstar one day. Um, you know, Giannis Antetokounmpo is another guy who went, I think, 15, 14 or 15, right? Uh, who who clearly had a lot of upside. so that's that's the pro-upside thing. Um, but you can't overcorrect for these things. I think it's important to kind of think of the draft in terms of, you know, what what, what are these picks worth for our team? Uh, sometimes it'll be a different decision for different teams. Uh, but, but looking to the past and, and trying, and that's the other thing, right, is trying to, like, Add all these things up and say, "Oh well, well, this is the approach that works more often than this approach." You you can't do it because every class is different, circumstances, roster fit, all of these things. So it, it's it's an exact science if it's a science at all.
0: Yeah, and I think later in the draft, there's going to be those same questions in terms of are you drafting a guy that is a little bit safer or are you you swinging for the fences? Uh, the, the final three guys I wanted to talk about, you know, a couple of guys that I think are more boomer bust candidates. They could be elite level players or they could be out of the league in three or four years are guys like Romeo Lankford and Bull Bowl. You know, Bull Bull has the measurements of a Rudy Gobert with, you know, a decent shooting touch and can actually handle it a little bit and, and has really good athleticism. But, you know, there's there's motor issues and obviously he's Uh, you know he's a he's a human stick he's he needs to add about 60 pounds worth of muscle Um, and then a guy like Romeo Lankford who has that that real quick burst able to get by guys Uh, he he has that great athleticism really good size Uh, but you know the jumper is a little bit of a concern and his ability to play off ball is a major concern but if he nails that uh, you know if he if he starts knocking down those jump shots and is a legitimate number one option, those off ball concerns aren't uh, aren't as big of a deal. And then you know the 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 Grant Williams uh, side of things later in the in the first round. That's projected a guy like Carson Edwards out of Purdue, who is uh, you know a a six foot point guard with with a six six wingspan is a little bit of an older rookie. I think he's twenty one. He he stayed three or four years at Purdue but has uh, has the ability to knock down the three-point shot and play off the ball well, and also did really well in the uh, lane agility drills at the draft combine.
1: Yeah, not, not too much to add on, on Lankford or Bull. I mean, just on Carson Edwards quickly, there, that's another one of these questions, right? It's like, does a massive tournament run, and we've seen very few, like what Carson Edwards did, what, how much do you value that, right? Like, I mean, Steph Curry... Kemba Walker. These are guys that we saw turn that into great NBA careers, and then there's guys like Shabazz Napier who, who have, you know, carved out a role in the league. Um, but it, but it took, it took a while. And if you're drafting for right away, uh, you know, how, how important is it to you that a guy like Carson Edwards, if he's going to become Shabazz Napier, you'll take that if he's Shabazz Napier from day one. Uh, but but he seems like maybe you know he's he's more of a second draft guy, and that's not something that necessarily wrong to invest in especially near the end of the first round when you're talking about contending teams looking for looking for help right away now if, if, if all you need is a guy who can come into the game and and hit some shots and maybe like you mentioned the wingspan can, can credibly defend once uh maybe Carson Edwards is more of a day one player but uh but so much of it comes down to fit with these kind of later first round guys um as, again particularly in this class
0: Yeah, and I actually read an article uh, detailing Edwards' game and how he would be a great fit in Philadelphia because of the unique skill set of Ben Simmons, where Simmons is able to, with his size, defend wings and also handle the point guard duties, the ball handling duties, and Edwards can guard the point guards and play off the ball.
1: Yeah, and and, I mean, another guy that
0: I think, talking
1: about backup point guards near the end of this draft that I think is fascinating is a guy like Ty Jerome, who... uh, doesn't really have a standout skill but like he's an excellent passer maybe you could say passing is a standout skill for him he's he's a he just he doesn't necessarily leverage the passing with the ability to break down the defense is kind of the thing uh so it's more of like a system you know ball mover in that sense but really good vision really high iq offensive player really solid jump shooter and and just a a, nasty defender Um, and and he's an older guy as well and he's projected, I haven't seen anyone projecting him to go anywhere close to the lottery but I feel like there's a lot of teams that could use Ty Jerome and he wouldn't be I would not be surprised at all if he ends up being a guy who makes an all-rookie team and when we look back at his draft probably should have gone in the top 10
0: yeah, and the, the you know the University of Virginia has had some pretty good success with guards in recent years, with the likes of Malcolm Brogdon and uh, and Joe Harris having having uh, good success in the league as uh, as role players. Uh, but uh, that's really all I had. Uh, we we've been talking for quite a while and on a, uh, uh, various topics. Uh, was there anything else you'd like to add about uh, anything we've discussed before we go? No. I- like I said, I can't wait for this draft and to kind of put the the 2019 uh, playoffs behind me. Yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be fascinating to see, and and yeah, you know, you've you've had a great uh, run of uh, the last five years of getting to watch some great basketball. Might be a little bit rougher of a go next year, but uh, you know, the the league as a whole is is really fascinating, and it should be a, a fun year again to watch uh, on League Pass. But uh, Simon, thank you so much for coming on. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on, Garrett. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, you can, uh, you can subscribe to the program on iTunes. If you can leave a, uh, a rating and review, that would be greatly appreciated as well. Uh, the show is also now on Spotify. Uh, if you can uh, give the show a follow, again, a rating on there, uh, that, uh, that really helps a lot. If, uh, if you've got any uh, questions or comments or, uh, or ideas for, uh, for future episodes, uh, you can contact me. Uh, on Twitter at Garrett Bougay, and also uh, my email is g-bougay at onu.edu. So uh, feel free to uh, to uh, give me any of your uh, ideas. I, I love to hear from uh, from the people listening to the program. And uh, enjoy the next week of the NBA calendar. And uh, have a great rest of your day.